0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Tonight
1: is uh, week four of this five-week series, and... I'd like to look at Steps 8, 9, and 10 tonight. See if we... We'll start with 8 and 9, see if we get to Um. 10. So for the meditation, uh, because Steps 8 and 9 are about making amends, and sort of the, the corollary in Buddhism is practices on forgiveness. So I'm going to do a guided meditation on forgiveness Um, and assuming there's enough time, if I talk fast enough, uh, lead that into some loving-kindness practice. And uh, I may even chant the discourse on loving-kindness to wrap it up if I'm feeling vocal. I'm uh, spent the week, at least since last Friday, at Spirit Rock, where I'm teaching a Dharma and recovery retreat. Some of the at least one person from here is there, and maybe maybe a couple others. There's several people from the South Bay. Um, So I got to do what I suspect Gil has had to do many times, which is drive from Spirit Rock to Redwood City, at rush hour. It actually wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. So let's just begin by settling into a comfortable posture. Letting the eyes gently close. Let your attention come to the heart center in the middle of the chest. And you can feel your breath there as the chest rises and falls. See if you can have a sense of softening and opening the heart, of letting yourself be vulnerable for these few minutes. Forgiveness is one of the great challenges and blessings of the spiritual life. To come into some peace around our past, around the ways we've been harmed, the ways we've harmed ourselves, and the way ways we've harmed others. As it's said, forgiveness is giving up any hope of changing the past. We can't go back. And yet we're often haunted by events from the past. And the forgiveness practice asks us to remember our humanness and the humanness of others. <clears throat> our humanness is imperfect. We harm others often not out of malice but out of our own pain. And we are often harmed by others out of their pain rather than their malice, out of confusion or insensitivity. When we acknowledge in the fourth and fifth steps, Our own shortcomings, our own failings. It can make it easier for us to accept the failings of others. We may begin to let go of perfectionism and judgment. So we'll begin by asking forgiveness from those we have hurt. There are many ways that I have hurt and harmed others, have betrayed or abandoned them, caused them suffering knowingly or unknowingly out of my pain, fear, anger, and confusion. Let yourself remember and visualize the ways you've hurt others. And as you do, feel your own sorrow and regret. Let the images or thoughts of those you've harmed. Move through your mind. Not getting into a story, but just allowing the image and the feeling in the heart of regret. Letting the experience be in the body, embodied. And see if you can sense that you can release this burden and ask forgiveness. So as a person appears in your mind, say to them silently, I ask for your forgiveness, I ask for your forgiveness. And as you ask for forgiveness, imagine that person saying, I forgive you. And see if you can take that in. Be forgiven. the burden of sorrow and regret. I ask for your forgiveness. Staying in the heart. Letting forgiveness move through you. now moving to forgiveness for yourself. There are many ways that I have hurt and harmed myself. I have betrayed myself or abandoned myself many times through thought, word, or deed, knowingly or unknowingly. As you sit here, feel your own Precious body and life. Let yourself see the ways you've hurt or harmed yourself. Picture them, remember them. Feel the sorrow you've carried from this and sense that you can release these burdens. Extend forgiveness to each of the ways you've harmed yourself one by one. saying to yourself, for the ways I have hurt myself, through action or inaction, out of fear, pain, and confusion, I now extend a full and heartfelt forgiveness. I forgive myself. I forgive myself. as i have harmed myself i forgive myself And now extending forgiveness for those who have hurt or harmed you. There are many ways I've been harmed by others, abused or abandoned, knowingly or unknowingly, in thought, word, or deed. Let yourself picture and remember these many ways. Feel the sorrow you've carried from this past and sense that you can release this burden of pain by extending forgiveness when your heart is ready. now saying to yourself, I now remember the many ways others have hurt or harmed me. I have carried this pain in my heart too long. To the extent that I am ready, I offer them forgiveness. to those who have caused me harm. I offer my forgiveness. I forgive you. those who have caused me harm, I offer my forgiveness. I forgive you. This is a practice of progress, not perfection. We forgive to the extent we are able to. We forgive ourselves to the extent that we are able to. Try not to add a judgment about any limitations you might have forgiving. begin to cultivate loving-kindness. Begin by thinking of someone who is very dear to you, someone who is easy to love. Staying in your heart, letting the image of them arise and feeling your heart's response to the thought of them, the warmth and kindness that naturally comes. And offer them your full loving kindness. You can do that just with a sense of heart-to-heart connecting or using phrases like, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be safe from inner and outer harm. And then turning this same loving kindness back on yourself. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be safe. Seeing if you can take in and accept Love and kindness for yourself. May I be happy, peaceful, safe. And now thinking of others who are dear to you, family, friends, partner. And as images arise in your mind, having that same heart connection you have with your beloved. feel the warmth of your affection for each of these loved ones. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be safe from inner and outer harm. Now, of a neutral person, if you can think of someone who you encounter in your life who isn't important to you in a positive or negative way, like a neighbor or someone who works in a coffee shop you patronize or a video store, perhaps a co-worker you don't know well. Just pick one person if you can. Offering them the same loving kindness you give the beloved person. So opening your heart to an unconditional love that doesn't depend On the person you're offering it to, but rather comes out of the open, loving heart. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be safe. thinking of a difficult person, someone with whom you've had some conflict or struggle, or it could be just a public figure who arouses your ire. And see if you can keep the heart open, soft, compassionate, Forgiving them for their humanness as you forgive yourself. And offering them just in this moment as much loving kindness as you can right now. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be safe and seeing to what extent you can keep the heart open and to what extent you can't, and not judging yourself for that, just seeing that truth. beginning to radiate loving-kindness outwards from your heart, out into this room, touching all the beings in this room. May you all be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be safe. And as the room fills with loving-kindness, it begins to spill out, out of the building, into the neighborhood, spreading in all directions, touching all the neighbors, all those nearby. May you be happy, peaceful, and safe. Feeling the heart, wide open, loving kindness, expanding and spreading in all directions. Across this peninsula, out into the ocean, across the continent, touching all beings. Imagining the whole earth being surrounded and permeated by loving-kindness. All beings on earth, safe. May all those on earth be happy, peaceful, and safe. The heart now growing vast as loving-kindness spreads outwards in all directions into the universe. The universe illuminated with loving-kindness. May all beings everywhere be happy. May all beings everywhere be peaceful. May all beings everywhere be safe from inner and outer harm. And these are the Buddha's words on loving kindness. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who seeks the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing, that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be. Whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense-desires, is not born again into this world. Hmm. Are there any questions or comments about the meditation? Everybody's forgiven? All that's cleaned up?
0: Uh, I noticed that... um, I, when we were forgiving people, I had the hardest time with the ones that I felt weren't ready to be forgiven, hmm. weren't open. I, I felt ready, really, with most, most all, and that was the hardest. And then it was also very hard for me when, um, when we were uh, forgiving all of the. Um, the, not forgiving, but wishing um, uh, peace and and um, safety and love for all the beings. Because um, I just um, I just know that there are a lot of beings that are not safe or happy or yeah. peaceful, and um, there are a lot of chickens in cages and children hurt and just all of them. And I just it I tried eventually, just to try and wish one second of peace for them because Mm. I didn't... I just know that they're not, you know. Mm. And so that was the hardest.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, it's... To hold the enormity of suffering without being overwhelmed is really one of the um, great challenges of, of spiritual practice. You know, it's much easier to just not see it, you know, to, to avoid it, to try to avoid it, and that's what I think most people do. And, and, and of course in our world, as it is now, we have so much information. You know, there was a time when people didn't re- realize much beyond their own village, but now we just sort of know the the worldwide scale of suffering, and it's um, it's a challenge, but a, a worthy one, you know. And I think that it has to begin with the heart breaking, and then starting to find a way to protect ourselves without armoring ourselves, and, and find a way to um, care without being overwhelmed, because ultimately we can't be of service, we can't help anyone if we're overwhelmed by suffering. Um, so it's you know very common for like, people who work in emergency rooms or these kind of crisis places to just get shut down. Um, as a protection, and, and then to, then they do this, they start to do that as a protection, and then they wind up just being shut down and not being able to access those feelings. So it's it's really uh, not uh, work that's for the meek. You know, it's really a great challenge. So I I honor your your pain with it.
3: I honor youth, but uh, old age has its blessings. (laughs) As I, um, you know, most of my amends are people who are already gone before me. And um, I'm 83, so as you get in your youth, there's a lot of suffering to be done. And uh, it comes full full blast. It comes around, and it's a gift. Uh, It's, if anyone said that to me when I was young... (laughs) I, I wouldn't believe it, but uh, through the path of the Buddha, uh, it enhances everything that I've ever believed in. And uh, my brother died 25 years ago, or 20 years ago yesterday.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And there's been a, um, a flooding of memories. Um, uh, i't you know, I, I wasted a prayer that he didn't die on his son's birthday. Anyway, he didn't. he died the next day. And uh, for whatever, all of that, one son was only 15 and the other was uh, 19. The gifts that I've seen of, I won't say they were without suffering, but there are many gifts that come later. And uh, old age is, uh, if we live to be there, a day at a time, and with, um, with tools like this. This man teaching us two ways to do it, whereas we go through the steps. Which the steps, to me, because God, as I understand Him, is awesome, and He has been so loud in the silence that I can't. Um, I'm just blessed, and I had the privilege to be with my son, with my uh, brother when he died, and my mother. Uh, you know, when everybody's gone, my mother, my father, my brother, my son. And uh, you develop muscles. I think I read it in one of Gil's books or something. And uh, to realize it pays off. And be patient with your youth. Enjoy it. And have the glory, the joy of the tears.
1: We'll try not to make the whole evening morbid, so. I, I, um, one of the things that struck me was I had the feeling that this had been done so many times before and I never even knew it was happening. I mean, not just in my lifetime, but maybe thousands of years, people have done this. Yeah. The other thing that struck me was it seems like it's already here. But the, the love, this, the safety, it's already here. But we can't see that. Yeah. So we have suffering. Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. You know what Ayakema, who's one of my teachers, says that when she teaches loving kindness. Or when she taught loving kindness, she's not around anymore. At the end, she would say, Now come, are you having trouble hearing? Yeah, I'm, I, I find that the, the lower tones you your voice are very hard to hear. Maybe it's the setting. Uh huh. Okay. And so you more trouble to it because the yeah. deep Yeah, I, I've probably, I've also been speaking a lot because I've been teaching retreats, so my voice is a little hoarse. Okay. She can't see me, though, with those glasses. So, <laughs> um, So Ayakema, uh would say at the end of a loving-kindness meditation, rather than leaving you out in space, as I did, <laughs> she would bring you back and tell you to go back into your heart and she would say, and now see that this vast loving-kindness comes from inside your own heart, and that it lives in your own heart, that it's always there, and it's always accessible to you if you just turn yourself to it. So that's came answer to your question. She's a better, bigger authority than me. Uh, Someone over here. Do you have that other hand, Mike? Great.
2: Um, It reminds me to some extent of uh, one of the pieces of advice in the big book, which is, and it's just a part of this, but it's when you're really, really, really angry at someone, you pray for them. Yeah. Even when you don't want to, and even when you don't believe it, and Mm -hmm. you don't even mean it, you do it. And I've actually tried it, and it actually works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, the loving kindness part of the meditation, in terms of someone that you're actually mm-hmm. <clears throat> not very fond of at the time, mm-hmm. um, I think is really analogous to that, and I think it's it's very useful.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, the the practical reality of it is that when we are angry, or when we are not forgiving, that pain is inside us. It's not inside them. (laughs) They could be dead, you know, or a thousand miles away. But we're we're the one who are feeling it and suffering it. So for very practical reasons, trying to find ways of letting go of anger, or to cultivate love, is certainly beneficial to us. And it doesn't mean at all, that we condone someone's behavior if they've been harmful, or that we don't hold them responsible in real ways, Um, but that we don't burden ourselves with additional suffering, which has no benefit for anyone and accomplishes nothing. Uh, But of course, you know, those are words and they make they can make sense, and we can have insight around that. But that doesn't mean that the feelings go away, you know. So we—that's why we keep working with it and cultivating it, and and um, and, and catching it. Just like with mind- mindfulness, that is not catching it like catching a cold, but c- noticing it as we do when the mind is wandered in meditation. That we. We find, when we find ourselves caught in that obsession or that resentment one more time, we have some other way to relate to it. We go, oh, and you, and you can just have those words, you know, may you be forgiven, or may you be happy, or, or I forgive you, or, I, or bless you, that's what I use. Um, as a way of just bringing ourselves back and letting go one more time in that moment. It's not Again, a practice, as I said, it's a practice of progress, not perfection. It's not that you do this once and you're done, but it becomes part of our toolkit, of our spiritual toolkit, when there's resentment, when there's anger, that we have some other way of working with it than just keeping mulling it and, and, and feeding the negative emotions. So oh, it's a practice like any other, yes. And they
2: spring to the. Um, it has seemed to me lately, maybe this is just, maybe this is just where I am. But a few different things I've studied just recently have to do with that. The point of them is for us to be able to be with what is. Without having our reactivity cloud cloud it all.
4: Yes.
2: And so, um, is it that, in your experience or knowledge, that the more we are able to be with, the more we see.
1: The more we are.
2: We. The more we experience of what is, the calmer we get. The less reactive we get. Yes. Yes.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, this is really, I mean, you're describing the practice quite well uh, that, you know, that, that seeing what is and seeing our reactivity is the starting point. And, and essentially we're seeing our pain and we're seeing what's causing our pain. So right in that moment, there's the motivation to let go. But it all starts with that awareness and that seeing how we're interacting with our experience. Whether we're judging it, pushing it away, grasping it, or whether we're just seeing it clearly. And, yeah. And it, and it absolutely, uh, it grows. I mean, you know, the, the, the pra- another practical aspect of mindfulness is to try to find things that will be mindfulness bells, things that will kind of remind you to be present. So, someone like Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen teacher, you know, has a whole book that are just little verses and phrases to rem- remind you. And he has everything from getting in the car, to flushing the toilet, to washing the dishes, to waking up in the morning. You know, it just everything, he makes everything into a little, I mean he has a little verse for everything, kind of ritualizing it, but really just encouraging us to pay attention in as many moments as possible. Um, One of the things that I do is I, uh, when I'm kind of working on a character defect, I try to, at the end of my morning meditation, I sometimes will make a little vow about it to be aware of it and to let go of it so, as a way of kind of planting the seed of mindfulness so that each time that character defect shows up in the day or that obsession or whatever <laughs> it is, that resentment, that when it shows up, I'll remember more quickly, oh, there's that thing. And that, in that way, uh, the negative things actually become mindfulness bells. And in a lot of ways it's easier to wake up to the negative because it's painful and you kind of, you know, it gets your attention than it is the, the more, I guess I would say addictive or like pleasurable things that, that we just get pulled into. Or the neutral things. Dick, you want to I just bought a, Yeah,
5: I just purchased a new or fresh roll of 100 stamps, the $0.42 cent stamps the day before the $0.44 cent stamp was required. Uh-huh. So I now decided whenever I have to add the extra two stamps to every letter for the next couple of months, I'm going to use it, I had decided i going to make it an activity to be, have an attitude of gratitude in that moment. So whenever I'm stick, sticking extra stamps now on this, because I'm furious at first that I bought a roll of outdated stamps. Uh-huh. For, you, know, way. you
1: didn't get the forever stamps, huh?
5: I didn't. I, and <laughs> sorry. I didn't know, and I, I'm sorry to remember. remind you. <laughs> no, 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 no but, that, but that leads me to my second point. You know, the Dr. Silkworth quote about restless, irritable, and discontented. Yeah. That is, and that tied into the notion of perfection. And the forgiveness thing for me is hard because I focus everything through perfection. Why am I not perfect? Why is that person not perfect? Why is life not perfect? Why do I have to keep doing this again? Why, did, why I got it, you know what I mean? I want, to, I want to get it and then not have to do it again. I don't want to meditate tomorrow. Right. You know, I'm Dr. Silkworth's classic patient.
2: Yeah.
5: <laughs> so it's just the teachings that, one, one thing that I do, I, many people I suspect have been, luckily, I'm lucky I'm alive, I'm my drunk driving past.
2: Yeah.
5: And I use that often. And my occasional drunk driving mistakes now, as a sober person, and I Mm. like to think that I use these. Say, whenever I see a person making some stupid move on the highway, I say, "You remember quickly? Remember when I did something even more lethal Mm. than that? You know." So thanks, Kevin. It's a great teaching. Yeah, those are
1: those are really good ones. When you were saying that about why, why it reminded me of a I used to play with this amazing African musician who wrote a song called Why. Why? Why? Oh, why oh why why, why? oh, why? why? Oh, why? Oh, why? Why? Oh, why? Oh, why? right to the point. <laughs> of course, it all turned out to be—it all turned out to be about his ex-wife. So it wasn't. Wasn't so spiritual after all. But. So uh, maybe we should take a little break. Let's have a little stretch, break for about seven, seven minutes, exactly, or not. ...of the cover of my new book from my editor this week, if anybody's interested in seeing I know you probably can't see it from there, but you can look at it later on. It's called A Burning Desire, Dharma God and the Path of Recovery. It comes out in January. Mark your calendars. (laughs) They think that's a good time for a recovery book for some reason. (laughs) Mm. I told them any time's a good time for a recovery book, believe me. Is
2: it Dharma God in recovery or Dharma God?
1: Dharma God. Dharma God. What do
2: you mean by that? Author.
1: You'll need to read the book. if you can't wait seven months? Were you here last week, week before last? Well then, you should already know. Didn't I tell you? Didn't I explain all that? A bit. Yeah, well. It, the book's 300 pages. You know, I couldn't get it all in in one evening, so... <laughs> It's actually, the phrase comes from uh, a great Thai master, Ajahn Buddhadasa. So it's one of the reasons I feel confident in using it, because um, I, in some ways I think it would be kind of presumptuous for me to, to make that up, but, but he, he talked about God as Dhamma, Dhamma God, which is the same thing, Dharma God. Um, so it's pointing to the uh, the non uh, uh, non personal or the, um you know the, the really the essence of God, which isn't a being. So it's trying to get people away from that idea of a being, a supreme being. So, um, so tonight to talk about, um, start with step eight, which says we made a list of all those we'd harmed and became willing to make amends to them all, or it says something like that. Sometimes I just get lost in the middle of talking, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. And then of course, step nine, which is made direct amends, amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. So obviously in the 12 steps, this has a particular, you know, specific role and other specific actions that are taken. And it's, it's clearly, you know, it, it clearly goes as part of this whole inventory process. And it's really, to me, this four through nine is, is a, a unit, a set of steps that go together. And, and uh, you know, by starting looking at our own side in our inventory and then sharing it with someone, uh, it's kind of the first um, real exposure and, and admission and then making a commitment to change, we could say in step six and seven, trying to let go or asking God to remove our shortcomings, um, Dharma God, um, and then this this final, really um, very direct uh, and practical, and very real uh, action that we take, it's not, no longer just something internal or spiritual, it's got a, a real-life, human-to-human component, and, and um, pretty scary, can be pretty scary, I'm sure. All those who have done this step uh, have had a uh, some kind of intense experience with it. it it's not easy. Um, You know, if we think about these steps as as trying to change our karma or uh, interrupt our karmic karmic flow, um, then um, this is part of that process. And then, could we close that door? Is it open for a reason? It's just. Oh, all right. Sorry, it's just the I, I thought there was, I just thought there were ghosts running around out there. Um, print. But if they're if it's for the air, that's fine. I'll I'll get over it. So the you know the great question. Uh, this is actually I gave a talk on this the other night at the retreat. Is how do we change? Know, this process of writing an inventory and looking at it and then trying to see learn what we can of that inventory about ourselves that needs to be changed and then set out to act differently to live differently to speak differently to even think differently you know, like loving kindness is like trying to think different excuse me, is to think differently um, to react differently as you said, to to respond to our own emotions differently. All of this is part of changing the direction of our lives. We can't fix the past. We can change our relationship to the past. When we do forgiveness practice, we're actually trying to change our relationship to the past, but we can't change what happened. We can't make it up to people in any real way. Uh, I think that's an exaggeration. Um, Let's just stick with we can't change the past. Um, So, uh, but certainly this step is, you know, quite clearly and obviously about taking responsibility and trying to repair relationships to the best of our ability so that people at least know that we know we were wrong. Because sometimes people don't know. or pe- and, and sometimes we leave people thinking that they were wrong. And, and they can be kind of confused and in, in pain around having been left, having been hurt by, by us and Wondering whether they had done something to cause that or whether it was their fault, and you know how, how we are, things aren't always simple. It's not always obvious. So to go to someone and say, "I was wrong, I was the r- "I hurt you," and I'm sorry," can, can help in that way. So that healing that can happen, emotional healing. But I think that what's larger and more important about this step is, first of all, the experience of the amends, of making an amends, of opening yourself in that way, of being that vulnerable, taking that risk, knowing, you know, it might it, you might not get forgiveness, you know. Um, I had various responses to my amends. Um but that we're starting to live in this way and, and, it's, and to learn to be really honest when we, when we make a mistake. That in itself is a training. It's part of our training, right? Our ch- to change ourselves, to turn ourselves into people who are trustworthy, who are honest. And if nothing else there's aversion therapy that happens through this step, because it's so difficult, you never want to have to do it again. You you have a big reason to not repeat those kinds of behaviors. You know, Bill Wilson in the 12 and 12 talks about how relationships are often the things that we drank and used over. Um... So, so um, this is a place, another place, where I think the steps really have something to give to the Buddhist community, where we tend to do most of our work internally. Um, and, and sometimes it doesn't translate into outer, outer work. Um, it's certainly supposed to, but uh, it doesn't necessarily. And the, the steps, with their being so explicit, kind of put us on the spot in a way that, you know, something like right speech or loving kindness doesn't quite put you on the spot in the same way. Like, you've got to come through here. You've got to do this thing. So we're having the direct experience of the spiritual life, of this aspect of the spiritual life, of forgiveness, of compassion, of um, honesty. And so I just think these steps are so powerful and, and uh, adopting them as a lifestyle is one of the great, great benefits of the, the steps. And you can sometimes, you discover that someone's in the program that you didn't know, like a workmate or something who comes up and starts to apologize to you and you can feel, oh, wow, this, this person's making amends to me. They're, they've been through this. Um, and that's, it's very sweet in that way. Certainly, um, this step is an important one in terms of maintaining our recovery, our sobriety, or uh, abstinence, or whatever our addiction is. Um, because as long as we have these things unresolved, they are things that can be triggers. So... So they need to be cleaned up for that practical reason. Um, and indeed, in meditation practice, um, you know, when you go and retreat, you leave your, your regular life, and you spend some days or weeks or month and months in silence, it all comes back. All the TV shows, all the relationships, all the mistakes, it just appears, you know, things just show up. And, you know, if, you, if there's a lot of un, stuff that isn't cleaned up, it can be very difficult to quiet the mind. Yeah. This is really why the... One of the ways that the Buddha taught, and really when he was teaching new people, the first thing he taught was Morality. You know, generosity and morality. He didn't start by teaching meditation, which is kind of how we do it in the West. Just because, well, because we like to get to the juice. We want the payoff right away. And it seems exotic and exciting. So let's meditate and get enlightened and solve all our problems. Um, The Buddha started by teaching morality. Because of this very reason that if you've been living a destructive and um, you know, uh, harmful life and when you sit down to get quiet and peaceful, all that karma appears. And when I say karma, I don't mean something magical or some uh, thing that's carried along. Every time we harm others, there's an emotional imprint. Pay attention to how it feels when you are angry. There's an imprint there. Each of, any strong emotion makes a certain imprint. And if, it's, if there's not some healing around it, then when there's quiet and you're trying to get into your heart, that imprint will tend to wake up and show itself so that's the karma that i'm talking about nothing magical uh, emotions are the most immediate karma that we experience you know you i probably gave this example but you know you give a dollar to the homeless person on the street and you have a feeling right then and you know, maybe there will be beneficial karma down the line where, you know, you'll win the lottery because you were so generous and giving. But what we, what we know for sure is that right now there's this karma of the feeling, the emotional karma. So, I thought maybe I would look at the the promises from the big book, which come halfway through, or before we are halfway through (laughs) this step. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. So if we are painstaking about it. It's an interesting word, I've never looked it up, but I, I'd love to see how that word came about. Painstaking, staking pain. Hmm. Don't, know, don't know what the derivation is. Any uh, linguists around who to conjecture on that? Pain, pains, t- taking pains. You're right, exactly. Of course, it's not staking. I, I had some kind of a vampire image going. <laughs> right, uh, right pain, taking pains. Jeez. Thank you for straightening me out. Um, the line goes after the S, not before the S. If we take pains about this phase of our development, it doesn't say anything about taking pleasure in this phase of our development. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. Hmm. What, what's a new freedom and a new happiness? What I think that is is a kind, must be a kind of freedom that we never had before and a kind of happiness that we never had before because we weren't living in this way we weren't honest we weren't compassionate we weren't forgiving we discover that lightness the Buddha calls the bliss of blamelessness one of my favorite alliterations bliss of blamelessness I always think of this as the feeling you get when you're clean and sober and the the lights on the police car go on behind you, and you realize the worst that can happen is you're going to get a speeding ticket. You know, that's the bliss of blamelessness. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes they just drive around you. <laughs> you know? oh, that's a shock. Whoa, I'm not guilty. We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it." Wow, that's, that's a huge statement. And, and uh, it's interesting that it, you know, it, it gets picked up later on. Um, it, I'm not sure why it's um, structured like this, but it says, we will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. And then it says, we will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. And then it says, no matter how far down the scale we've gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. Which seems like that's directly connected to the idea of not regretting the past. And I'm not sure why they separated those two ideas. I'm sure there was a reason. But... um, But I connect. I certainly feel that the, the reason that we will not regret the past nor wish shut the door on it is because we'll see that our, be- our experience can benefit others. Um, and, oh, and what a revelation, you know? And what a... Uh, talk about a new happiness and a new freedom. And, uh, y- you know, it's... Um, it's kind of like magic, really. Um to be able to take what was the most painful and difficult aspects of your life and turn them into a gift for other people. And to see other people receive that gift and really, you know, be happy to hear it, you know. I mean, how many times have we, you know, heard the most gruesome stories in a meeting and everybody just is cracking up, laughing, you know, that... That um, sense of, of fellowship and shared shared understanding, we will comprehend the word serenity, and we will know peace. Well, this is just what the what I was talking about with the Buddha's teaching about teaching morality. That that's how you can access um, you know, the meditative states with you if you have that that foundation. Um, and, uh, and I would say that um, this is where the Buddhists can help with the serenity and peace. Um, the uh, training the mind, training the heart and mind that the Buddhist practices do then um, allow the deepest states of serenity and peace. Uh, but it's, it's, it's beautiful that the, you know, that the sila practice, the practice of morality, it, it, which in many ways, the steps, that's their core in a way, uh, that this really points to how powerful that, that practice is. And again, it's something that I think our culture has, has lost to a great extent. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm overgeneralizing. But um, when we think about the way to happiness as it's conceived in the mainstream of this culture, the first thing that springs to mind is not morality, generosity, loving-kindness, You know, compassion, you know? It's more getting a good job, having a partner you love, you know, having great kids, you know, living in a nice place. You know, it's more the externals. Um, And all those things are great, you know. Um, But uh, do they actually bring serenity and peace? Maybe sometimes that feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. Thank you. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Mm -hmm. Self-seeking will slip away. Of course, this is Saying exactly what Buddhism is talking about, and it's the insight that, um, well, as Ajahn Sumedho says, whenever I think about myself, I get depressed. You know, know, that says it all right there. You know, it's just self-centered, self-centeredness. You know. But when we're not, when there isn't the, you know, I, I mean, I think that our self-centeredness comes because of our unresolved pain, you know. And it's not, it's not that we wanted to be self-centered or we, we thought that was a great thing to be, it's just that our internal experience called our attention. It was so loud, you know, it was calling to us so much, and and seeming to need so much attention. Our natural response then was to focus on ourselves and try to, you know, it's only when you feel at ease within yourself that you can look up and notice that there are other people in the room and start to care about other people. So it's, uh, you know, as much as sometimes it's characterized as something uh, uh, intentional, I don't think it's intentional. I don't think that self-centeredness is intentional. Um, the whole disease of addiction is, you know, so, so challenging and, and perhaps the personality that is drawn into that, even before there's an addiction, is already troubled and, and struggling. You know, for many of us, as they say, you know, alcohol was my solution. Uh, Drugs were my solution. Food was my solution to the pain that I had because I didn't have any other solution. So it's, it's when that pain subsides that we can start to be of service. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. That's probably one of the biggest. Uh, we have to read that line very carefully, of course. It does not say that economic insecurity will leave us. It says that fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, for some reason I was thinking about the Second Amendment, but I won't go there. Um, You know the problem is fear. The problem isn't the economic insecurity. Economies are by nature insecure, in case you haven't noticed. And it's how do we relate to that? How do we live with that? And this is, you know, just one aspect of the whole way that the path of mindfulness is encouraging us to hold our life, to hold our experience, seeing that everything is impermanent and therefore insecure, seeing that suffering is just natural, that as things change, pain arises and pain passes, that aging happens, that painful emotions arise no matter how serene and at peace you are, sometimes, no matter how much inner work you've done, no matter how much success you've had, whatever you've gotten in life, there's still going to be painful emotions that are going to arise. How do you hold that? You know, how can you hold that? Can you allow sadness or fear or anger? to arise and to not drown you, to not capture you? Can you see emotions as just energies moving through you? And the phrase that I learned recently that I may have said to you guys, my memory does not last a week, um, is, that emotions are just life moving through you. That idea is very consoling for me. My feeling was always, emotions are these things that arrive and move in, set up house, and if I want to get them out, I have to get a jackhammer and a blowtorch and some TNT. And by the time I'm done, I'm a wreck, you know? Or I'm just drowning in depression uh, or just swarmed with anger, resentment. When emotions arise, it's natural, when difficult emotions arise, it's natural for us to want them to go away. But just that very wanting creates more trouble, creates more pain. It feeds the emotion. What allows the emotion to pass is when we can just feel it fully and not try to fix it. If you always remember impermanence, if you just remember that, you know, oh, sadness, impermanence, okay. I can be sad for a little while. I can't be sad for the rest of my life. That will drive me crazy, you know. And oftentimes that's what I thought. When I would feel sad, I would think, I'm going to feel like this for the rest of my life. I've got to do something about it, quick, pour me a drink. (laughs) But when we can just trust that they'll move through us and stay with our intention, stay with our practice, stay with our program, stay with our life showing up one day at a time, one breath at a time, going to our meeting, going to work, showing up for our responsibilities. Life has a way of just moving those emotions through us. You know, you get wrapped up in your work or your you know, lunch with your friend or the, listening to someone in a meeting and an hour or so later you realize, oh, what happened to that emotion? Oh, it, it's gone. You know? Because I didn't stop and say, oh, I need to call off my day and solve this and fix it, you know because there's a problem, and so the thing to do is fix it. Very counterintuitive uh, to our kind of survival mechanism. The survival mechanism says there's pain, and so I must address it. But with emotional pain, allowing it to pass through. And, and I'm talking now, really, I, I want to be very clear about this, I'm talking about those transient emotions. I'm not talking about like clinical depression or, or uh, you know, bipolar or an anxiety disorder and things that really uh, sometimes need professional attention or need medication or all those things. I'm not prescribing here. Uh, but, but really talking more about the difficulties that we tend to get ourselves more into, that we tend to make worse than they are for ourselves. we will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us of that. You know, intuition, another one of those things that has kind of a like woo-woo magical sound to it, like I'm a psychic or something, I know what's gonna happen next. It's true that sometimes I can predict the next thing that's gonna happen in a TV show. That's not exactly psychic. It's just because I've watched too many TV shows probably. Um, but where intuition comes from is from that still place inside us, from that silence, from that serenity and peace that we now know. Um, We, in the same way that we try to solve our emotions with our head, And we also try to handle situations with our head and come up with answers. Let me figure this one out. Um, And one of the things that I've found most helpful is when faced with a question about what to do next, is to say, let me think about that. And what I mean is, I don't want to think about it, right? Don't let me not think about it for a little while. And the answer will come if I leave the space. It's like, you know, when you get the email and you think, oh, yeah, I'm going to tell them, I'm going to write back to them. And you, and you shoot off the email and start a flame war, you know. And, and if you just had stopped, you know, and, and I get my share of these kinds of emails. If I stop, whenever I get an email like that, I go, Oh, okay. And then I st- step away from the computer. <clears throat> and just um, let the emotions calm, let the heart calm, and then see, oh, what would be helpful? Let, the, let that wisdom come. It's in this. It really, to me, intuition is just what arises when you don't have all the noise, surface noise, that you normally have. When you just... Um, are able to drop some of that blah-blah-blah-blah-blah-blah-blah-blah-blah-blah that's on the surface, uh, and you discover. it's Again, it's, an, it's another act of faith. We have to trust ourselves. And, and our brain doesn't trust our heart. You know? Our brain wants to run things. You know, the ego wants to jump in and solve everything. But the heart usually knows better. we will suddenly realize that God is doing for us, Dharma God, for us what we could not do for ourselves. I'm not even going to address that.
2: <laughs> I'm sorry.
1: It's too complicated. I, I, I hope that's not too um, irresponsible of me, but... Uh, I feel I, can, I could pick it apart, but it would almost be a painful exercise. So I'm just going to say that uh, what this means to me is that things will work out if I live properly, if I live wisely. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly sometimes very slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. So apparently the promises start by saying that we need to be taking pains, and they end by reminding us that we need to work for them. So these are not magical promises, please.
5: Uh huh. Is a better formulation. I think a more more modest and more humble formulation would be, if we don't do the work, we're not going to get there. Yeah. yeah. But just doing the work alone, you know, it's maybe oh well, you know, like, then we know God, then we're God. So anyway.
1: Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean,
5: no, uh, um, fussing with with them.
1: Yeah. Well, it's okay. I mean, this, this I think it's an important point that. Yeah. Just
5: working alone.
1: yeah all right effort as long enough as we've seen in program mm-hmm. yeah no it's true and i will just keep it and i think that i, I think that um, you know i think that the language sometimes in the in the book and in the literature often is somewhat exaggerating uh, i think they were pretty excited and it's,
5: uh, Well, the whole concept of character defect, I mean, that is so, so, so strongly yes. uh, and poisonous. And, yeah. you know, I, I heard a person one time say, sh- she's a therapist, and she, she rephrased it as uh, unhelpful unhelpful behaviors, yeah. or unskillful behaviors, to use but that it, rather than it, character defect. Yeah, but
1: it really gets your attention. Yes, it does. And I think that's what they were trying to do. <laughs> I think they were trying to really get people's attention. Yeah. Um, inspire people and all of that.
5: I just want to thank you also now because I finally, the regret promise, you've now made sense for me after 16-plus years in the program because I was always saying regretting the past, and then I now can see I have a a using 26-year-old son, and I'm seeing now that maybe my, not regretting my past, I can be of use to him. Certainly I wouldn't be of use to him, and those of us who are parents would know I several of my friends here are parents. What disasters we'd really be if we were still drinking? We're having some issues now, but God, we would just be off train wrecks. Yeah. You know, those of us who were parents, if we were oh, still yeah. drinking and using.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, when I think about my childhood versus my daughter's childhood, it's real interesting. I mean, she's got, she's got alcoholic genes on both sides, yeah. but she's not growing up in a culture of drinking. She's growing up in a culture of not only not drinking, but that her father's making a living at not drinking. You know? What a deal! <laughs> yeah. So it's a career choice now. You know? <laughs> you
5: know. Who'd have thunk? Yeah?
1: It's definitely a different viewpoint from mine, <laughs> which, which was like, I'm going to get a tuxedo and a martini when I grow up. You know. <laughs> So we do have a few more minutes. I'd love to hear some more comments, questions. Yeah.
4: Um uh, and, and, uh, responding to that or uh,
1: adding on to it, um, you know, I have two teenage daughters and I'm oh I uh, forgot about this. My dad is on. I think it's on but not real loud. I have <laughs> There it is There heard the pop
4: testing, yeah <laughs> so I have two teenage daughters, and uh, I did my fair share of using when I was very young, eleven to fifteen and um, very early on, I said to them, "Look, you can you know all of this is out there for you now, but." I will know immediately <laughs> what, that you've used something, and I could probably tell you exactly what drug you've taken based on your behavior. And mm. it's amazing to me. It's an incredible blessing that by sharing with them appropriately at the right ages, honestly and you know, uh, without all the gory details that I that both of them are really not even interested. They're just, I mean, they could be, you know, totally pulling the wool over my eyes. I'd be really surprised. Yeah. But they're not interested. And yeah. I just, it's such a gift. Of course, I look at them and say, their childhood is not what my childhood yeah. was. And I told them that. I said, you can, you know, you might want it, you might be tempted to use, but you know, I had, <laughs> you know, I had reasons, I, I you know, <laughs> well, you know, I, and I, I told them I was using because I was in extreme pain because of what was going on in my household. Yeah. I said, you may not have that. You may have distress. You may, you know, have loneliness and, and all kinds of other feelings that are very modern, but, um, Anyway, um, I just—I guess I just wanted to share that you know, in that way of having had some really chaotic, uh, painful experiences very early in my life. That by sharing that with my kids, um, you know, I think at least for now, today, they're spared from uh, you know going down that path. But I—I yeah. I have no illusions that in you know two months or. Two years or twenty years, they might choose that path because addiction is on both sides of yeah, the family. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. But it certainly, I think we have a better, better chance, better hope, um, and and I mean, even the culture today. I mean, when I was growing up, I actually knew uh, one person who was an Alcoholics Anonymous. a friend of my parents, and and you know, I, I lived in I was from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and and actually there was like a, I guess he was a relative who used to, they used to have meetings at his house, and Bill Wilson used to come there, I mean, that's before I was born, but, but um, it was, it was, you know, very, in a a very peripheral way in the air. I mean, my, my mother, whose father was a real hope-to-die alcoholic and actually succeeded in dying, was a member of the National Council on Alcoholism which was right down the street from our house. I mean it was kind of, you know, little stuff but but everybody drank like, you know, it was that, you know, in the 50s. I mean, has anybody seen that TV show Mad Men? Yeah. That was, you know, that was like the lo- life that I grew up in. It was very much like that. And so, um, you know, AA was really kind of a you know, a sort of obscure thing in those days, people knew about it, but you know it wasn 't like it is now where it 's just kind of movies and you know it 's just so uh, kids know all about that stuff you know uh, it 's great I mean that to me is p- some of the progression of consciousness in our culture as much as we see it going destructive in many ways, and g- greed and hatred and delusion are always there, there's a lot of positive consciousness arising as well. And this is one of the ways. So, um, you know, we can't control the individuals, but, um, but we can see that there's this positive co- movement uh, in, that, in that regard. So, I mean, when you think about just, I mean, it's just 70 years ago this year that the big book was published. And when you think about how that before that there really was no kind of system or approach to recovery. There were random things. But, my God, you know, we're very lucky to be living in this little slice of time where this is available. Incredibly, incredibly lucky. Well, and also, there wasn't a lot of Buddhism around in 1939 either. (laughs) So, I'm, I'm grateful for those two things. You know, we... One of the things that we don't, in, at least in any conscious way, control is the time when we are born, when our lifetime is. And of course, according to Buddhism, we have many of them, but you know the only one we're aware of is the one we're in, and you know it's a pretty amazing (laughs) time to be in. Uh, You know, if you, if you make the best of it, you can have a really, you know, if if you got a good deal in this lifetime, you know, in terms of being born here and, you know, having, you know, at least some relative comfort, you can really have a pretty fascinating, amazing life. I don't know what the heck I'm talking about right now. (laughs) It's, uh, any other thoughts? Anybody want to save me? <laughs> Some wise words. I, uh, uh, if it's not obvious, well, it is obvious, but I'll make it explicit that I have not gotten to step 10. And my thinking right now is that given that I've got more one more week, if I'm going to sacrifice a step, it's going to be step 10. Uh, with the understanding that steps four through nine are just what step ten is, Mm -hmm. over and over. So, um, and and, and I will talk, I have a minute or two. I I find that when I talk about inventory, a lot of time really I'm talking about step ten. Because the one time big inventory is kind of, I mean, I know some people do it over and over, and I respect them very much. But I'm not one of them. Uh, I've done a couple, uh, but the the staying current part, you know that that's big. That's that's what it's all about to me, and and it's it's the beginning of the the we call the maintenance steps, um, and it's. It's really, to me, about do you want to have to go back and do this all over again, just as I said about step nine before. You know, if you don't stay up on things, you know what happens. It just starts to build up again. The same regret, the same guilt, the same shame. And, uh, (coughs) you know, there's a sensitivity we develop as we're clean and sober, as we, develop, as we cult- cultivate a spiritual life uh, and we become less tolerant of those feelings. We're not, we don't have the, maybe the same strategies to suppress them. We don't want to suppress our feelings. We don't want to suppress life anymore. We want to experience life. So when we do something wrong, we don't have the same defense mechanisms you know, we've, we've abandoned those defense mechanisms, because they were what killed us, you know, almost killed us. So, um, so this step is just, step ten is, is that um, stay current, you know, stay current, or, or, or we suffer. I mean, it's the, you know, this, this uh, irony, I mean, what I, what I call the higher power of suffering, and I don't know if I talked about that when I talked about higher power, but the, the, the higher power of suffering is what inspires us to change. Suffering is a power. It's, it's the first noble truth. It's not something we can turn off or turn on. It happens. Suffering happens. It's part of nature. But when we become sensitive to it and learn the skillful response, it becomes a a mindfulness bell. It becomes a wake up for us. So that suffering then becomes the, as they say, the touchstone for spiritual growth. It becomes the thing that wakes us up. So it stops being something we're trying to avoid. It's something that we're actually very attuned to and awake to because we know that the suffering is telling us something. The suffering is telling you, here, this needs attention. This needs care. This needs maybe some growth, some, maybe you need to change in some way, but there's something you need to address. Um, so I think that's, that's a good thing to note to end on. And let's just close with the dedication of merit. So we began the evening by contemplating those we've harmed and those who have harmed us the way we've harmed ourselves. And the work that we've done to heal, to make amends, is for our own benefit and for the benefit of others. And this whole, culture of healing that the 12 steps in Buddhism embody is spreading and touching beings one after another. And we are part of that, part of that awakening of the Dharma. Awakening of recovery. May our work of healing help to heal all beings. May all beings be free from suffering. Thanks again. I'm really enjoying being with you guys for this group. Next week will be the last week of this five-week, 12-step
2: series. Thank you.